Uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 4 this evening. We are back again to the book of Chronicles. And as I mentioned, when we when I decided to tackle the books, I had a long conversation with myself about how to handle the genealogies, which really cannot be ignored. They're the word of the Lord. On the other hand, there's a sense in which they're better served if we dealt with all nine chapters at once, but I don't suppose there's much appetite on your end or my end for that. So we are working our way through them slowly. Let's go ahead and stand, please. We're going to begin in verse number 24. <clears throat> We're going to read into chapter number 5. First Chronicles chapter 4, beginning with verse 24. The sons of Simeon were Nemuel and Jamin, Jerob, Zerah, and Shal. Shalom his son, <clears throat> Mibsam his son, Mishma his son. And the sons of Mishma... Hamuel his son, Zachar his son, Shimei his son. And Shimei had sixteen sons and six daughters, but his brethren had not many children, neither did all their family multiply like to the children of Judah. And they dwelt at Beersheba and Moladah and Hazar Shul, and at Bilhah and at Ezem and at Toldad and at Bethuel and at Hormah and at Ziklag. And at Beth Markaboth and Hazar Susim and Beth Biri and Sherim, these were their cities unto the reign of David. And their villages were Etam and Aen, Rimen and Takan and Ashan, five cities, and all their villages that were round about the same cities unto Baal. These were their habitations and their genealogy. And Meshabab and Jamlak and Joshua the son of Amaziah, and Joel and Jehu, the son of Josabiah, the son of Sariah, the son of Asiel, and Elioni, and Jacoboth, and Jehoheah, and Asaiah, and Adiel, and Jesimiel, and Benaiah, and Ziza, the son of Shiphai, the son of Alon, the son of Judea, the son of Shimri, the son of Shemaiah. <clears throat> These mentioned by their names were princes, and their families and their house of their fathers increased greatly. And they went to the entrance of Gedor, even unto the east side of the valley, to seek pasture for their flocks. And they found fat pasture and good, and the land was wide and quiet and peaceable, for they of Ham had dwelt there of old. And these were written by name, came in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and smote their tents and the habitations that were found there, and destroyed them utterly unto this day and dwelt in the rooms because there was pasture there for their flocks. And some of them, even of the sons of Simeon, 500 men, went to Mount Seir, having their captains Pelatea and Nera and Raphiah and Uziel, the sons of Ishi, and they smote the rest of the Amalekites that were escaped and dwelt there unto this day. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but forasmuch as he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given unto the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. And the genealogy is not to be reckoned after the birthright. 
For Judah prevailed above his brethren, and of him came the chief ruler, but the birthright was Joseph's. The sons, I say, of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak and Palu, Hezron and Carmi, the sons of Joel, Shimeah his son, Gog his son, Shimei his son, Micah his son, Reah his son, Baal his son, Bera his son, whom Tilgath-Pileser, king of Assyria, carried away captive. He was the prince of the Reubenites. And his brethren by their families, when the genealogy of their generations was reckoned, were the chief, Jeel and Zechariah. And Bela, the son of Azaz, the son of Shema, the son of Joel, who dwelt in Aror, even unto Nebo and Baalmeon. And eastward he inhabited unto the entering in of the wilderness from the Euphrates, because their cattle were multiplied in the land of Gilead. And in the days of Saul they made war with the Hagarites who fell by their hand, and they dwelt in their tents throughout all the east land of Gilead. And the children of Gad dwelt over against them in the land of Bashan unto Salca. Joel the chief, Shaphan the next, Jani, Shaphat, Bashan, and Bashan. And their brethren of the house of their fathers were Michael and Meshulam and Sheba and Jorai and Jachin and Zia and Heber, seven. These are the children of Abiel, the son of Hurai, the son of Jeroah, the son of Gilead, the son of Michael, the son of Jeshishai, the son of Jado, the son of Buzz, and the son of Abdiel, the son of Guni, the chief of the house of their fathers. And they dwelt in Gilead in Bashan and in her towns, in all the suburbs of Sharon upon their borders. All these were reckoned by genealogies in the days of Jotham, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, king of Israel. The sons of Reuben, the Gadites, half-tribe of Manasseh, valiant men, men able to bear buckler and sword and to shoot with bow and skillful in war, were 44,703 score that went out to the war. And they made war with the Hagarites, with Jeter, with Nephesh, and Nodab, and they were helped against them, and the Hagarites were delivered into their hand, and all that were with them, for they cried to God in the battle, and he was entreated of them, because they put their trust in him. And they took away their cattle, of their camels 50,000, and of sheep 250,000, and of asses 2,000, and of men an 100,000. For there fell down many slain, because the war was of God. <clears throat> And they dwelt in their steads until the captivity. And the children of the half-tribe of Manasseh dwelt in the land. And they increased from Bashan unto Baal Hermon and Sinir and unto Mount Hermon. These were the heads of the house of their fathers, even Ephor and Ishi and Eliel and Azrael and Jeremiah and Hodaviah and Jadiel, mighty men of valor, famous men, and heads of the house of their fathers. And they transgressed against the God of their fathers and went to whoring after the gods of the people of the land whom God destroyed before them. And the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, and the spirit of Tilgath-Palneser, king of Assyria. And he carried them away, even the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and brought them unto Hala and Habor and Hera, and to the river Gazan unto this day. And let's pray. Well, Father, we pray again and always your blessing upon what we do as a church. Whether it be in the 
individual ministries in which we are involved or the collective ministry or the public services. Father, may it be always at all times that all that we do is honoring to you, is mindful of you, is making you preeminent. Help us tonight, please. Instruct our hearts. Instruct us to guard carefully our spirits. And I pray this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, if I may so brazenly again remind us of the place and purpose of Chronicles. God had entered into a covenant with Israel, uh, what we call the Mosaic Covenant, the Law of Moses. Uh, you can read about it in Exodus 18, 19, 20, actually through, verse, through chapter number 24. God delivered the Israelites and basically made them an offer. If I will be your God and you can be my people. And here are the conditions, the Ten Commandments. And the people agreed, and you have then, of course, all of the ratification. And it became a covenant binding not simply upon the generation that made it, but upon those children's children and their children's children. And so that every person who was born an Israelite, born under that covenant, was obligated to live out the conditions of the law of Moses. And of course, we know enough from our Old Testament to know that rather than do that faithfully, the history of Israel is pretty much one long broken record of disobedience, dishonoring God, turning their back on him, and God sending prophet after prophet after prophet, and God dealing with them through the Assyrians at first, and ultimately the Babylonians, until about a thousand years after the covenant, A thousand years after the covenant. He sent the Babylonians who crushed them and carried them away captive. In an amazing act of grace and mercy, he promised them, and you can read about that in the book of Jeremiah, that this captivity would last for 70 years and then he would bring them back into their land. And when you get to the books of Chronicles, that time has come. The book of Chronicles is written to those people who are returning. And there is a sense in which it functions, folks, very much like a legal document. Genealogies are, generally speaking, not very thrilling reading. But it functions kind of like a legal document. It is mapping out the territorial boundaries. And it is reminding the people of God that they have a legitimate right to claim Jehovah as their God and to worship at his temple and to live in his land. But it is not just simply dry, boilerplate legality. It also has periodic episodes and reminders and as we read through this passage I didn't point them out you can go back through it and and read through it I trust that you're reading through it um, in your devotions but but there are references to various kings King Saul and King David and Hezekiah so that these people are being traced through their their time of life over the course of these 10 centuries in which Israel lived in the land before it was carried away captive The portion that we read this evening, of course, monumental to the story of Israel is, first of all, the selection of Abraham, 
and God making to Abraham a promise of seed, which he had one son who would inherit that seed, Isaac. Isaac had the twins, one of those sons, Jacob, would receive the promise. And Jacob had 12 sons who went on to become the 12 tribes, the 12 building block families of the land. Most of the genealogies are preoccupied with the two most significant tribes. I don't know the best way to put that. Judah, the ruling tribe, and Levi, the religious tribe. But what we have here in the portion that we have read this evening are commentaries and observations and a bit of the history of four other tribes. People who are legitimate descendants. People who are offspring of Jacob. One of whom, Reuben, by virtue of being the oldest child, had much prestige and property coming to him. And his own conduct caused it to be forfeited. So Judah has been dealt with at length. It is the kingly tribe. It is the tribe from which David comes, Hezekiah comes, all of the kings come. We will turn our attention eventually to, in chapter 6, to the Levitical tribe, the tribe of Levi, and its religious portion. And this evening our passage deals with Simeon, Reuben, Gad, and part of Manasseh. Structurally it's like this. Simeon is 4, 24 to 43. Reuben is 5, 1 through 10. Gad is 5, 11 through 17. There's a little bit of an interlude. And then in 23 through 35, you have the half-tribe of Manasseh in the summary in verse number 26. These are the people who lived in the farther northernmost region of Israel. And they were then, by geography, the easiest prey for the king of Assyria, who was closest to their border. Structurally, they fall into two lines, into two groupings. Um, When you get to the end of chapter 4 and verse number 43, with reference to Simeon, it is unto this day. And Simeon is dealt with rather positively in the text. And then you have the other three tribes who are dealt with rather negatively. But in verse number 26, and I think also in verse 23 or 24, you have the phrase, unto this day. So there is a continuity, folks. We want to remember that unto this day doesn't mean unto this day, October 8, 2023. It means unto this day, the day that the chronicler is writing to describe the history of Israel as they come back from the land of captivity. I just kind of want to walk through. We're not going to, obviously, we're not going to go back and read it all again. But I just kind of want to walk through it and then make three observations in closing that really will be the bulk of what we're doing this evening. Simeon enjoyed a measure of God's blessing. And he is the first tribe dealt with in verses 24 through 43. Simeon was the son of Jacob and Leah. You remember that Jacob ended up with four wives. Uh, The one that he really wanted, Rachel, the one that he got first, Leah, and then their two handmaids, their their two personal assistants. 
It is Simeon who joined ranks with his brother Levi in the incident with their sister Dinah in which they, and I don't think that, I, I don't think that their retaliation is what is as questionable as their methodology is as questionable, their practice of deceit. In Genesis 49, in reflecting upon this, and we have to recognize that Genesis 49 is Jacob speaking not simply as dad, but with the voice of God, labels them as having instruments of cruelty in their hands. These are men who are willing to resort to violence for their means. But they are geographically very close to the tribe of Judah. In fact, their territory, when you go into the book of Joshua, their territory is kind of encircled by the land of Judah. And when Judah first goes to war in the book of Judges, it is to Simeon that he appeals for help. Come and help me against these people. And what you have then in this part of chapter 4, verse 23 through 43, are some of their military conquests, but you don't want to miss, folks, is the fact that it took much longer than perhaps it should have for them to acquire this territory. God sent them in in the book of Joshua and said, here's the land, take it. When Joshua died, he said, there's still a lot of land to be possessed. And here we find some of this land not being taken until the days of Hezekiah. What is promised in Joshua 15 is not conquered until the time of Hezekiah and brought under their domain. But again, they are viewed favorably, or at least there is very little expressed critically. The criticism comes in chapter number 5, and that's where we will try and extract our observations. The other three tribes also enjoy some measure of God's success, specifically stated. These three tribes, which are Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, there's a similar format given to them. If you are inclined to chart these things out in the genealogies, you have partly the family members and partly the land that they conquered. But you'll notice that it is Reuben's sin, and what it cost him is mentioned at the very outset. At verse chapter 5, for instance, verse number 1, it's worth looking at again. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel... For he was the firstborn. Now, if I could just pause, and and you know this, folks, but for the sake of my own conscience, I'm going to go over it. Even in our culture, even in the 21st century, we recognize an unusual dimension to the firstborn child. They tend to be in some way honored, and as a rule... Not exclusively, but as a class of people, firstborn children tend to be among the smartest of the family members. I'm sure I've told you this before. There's a, you can find his courses. There are courses in philosophy. It's a very good lecture. They're worth listening to on justice by a guy that teaches at Harvard. 
And as the camera pans the audience, that's, he's, he's in a huge amphitheater, and both the main floor and the balcony are filled with young college students. And in one of his lectures, as he is talking about justice, do we have real justice, and what is it, and how would it be? He starts to laugh because he's done this a lot and he knows what's coming. And he just says, how many of you are the oldest child in your family? And probably 80% of the hands in the class go up. 80% of that class is the firstborn in their family, students at Harvard. But in the biblical world, it isn't just a matter of being the first child or being the first child and being special. There were birthright benefits and legal benefits that came to you because of that, and that's what's being addressed here. Not that Reuben was the smartest of the kids. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but forasmuch as he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given unto the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, and the genealogy is not to be reckoned after the birthright. One of the things, by the way, folks, to make note of in the Old Testament is how often God takes that traditional birthright benefit and turns it on his head. Disregards the custom and the culture. Verse number two, for Judah prevailed above his brethren and of him came the chief ruler, but the birthright was Joseph. So the the legal status as being the main inheritor of dad's stuff was transmitted elsewhere. And the preeminence that came for being the firstborn child was transmitted to Judah because of his immorality with his father's handmaid. had a physical relationship with what could arguably, I'm not even, I was going to say with his stepmother, but that's not even, that would not be correct. Had a physical relationship with Bilhah, his father's wife. And that cost him. And that's not ignored in the genealogy. That's really the point I'm trying to make, folks. This doesn't get glossed over in this portion of the Scripture. And then in verse 18 down through verse number 22, which we will not read, there is this wonderful story of triumphant military activity with the exception of, let me read to you verse number 22, right? You have the story of the soldiers and the battle and these mighty men of valor so that of course you would think they would win, but here's why they win, verse 22, for there fell down many slain because the war was of God. Because the war was of God. This was a war against ancient enemies that God had decreed and they enjoyed a tremendous success not simply because they were brave and skilled but because they had the Lord's blessing. 47,000 soldiers go out and win his war. But the story turns sour, folks, in the rest of the chapter. Verse number 25, and they transgressed against the God of their fathers and went to whoring after the gods of the people of the land whom God destroyed before them. And the God of Israel stirred up the spirit to pull the king of Assyria and the spirit of Tilgath-Paneser, king of Assyria, 
And he carried them away. And he carried them away. So a group of men of valiant warriors who are skilled in battle go out and with the help of God win a great victory. Which leads in verse number 23 to their increase. They increased from Bashan unto Baal Hermon and Senir and unto Mount Hermon. Which led to their treachery. Which led to their treachery. And so this band of men, not them, because there's a process of time that is involved, but what becomes of those men? What becomes of these men who enjoyed God's blessing? Their descendants went on to become God's enemies. Now the line is perpetuated, and God preserves it, but God had waged war against it. So that's kind of the way the genealogy unfolds here. What became of these tribes? And unfortunately, what became of these tribes is that having enjoyed the blessing of God, they nevertheless turned against him. So three things in observation and closing. Folks, one of the biggest things that the Old Testament does in its collective state, is point us to our need of a supernatural Savior. Of a supernatural Savior. I made mention at the beginning of the message that God delivered the Israelite people from the clutches of Pharaoh and brought them into the land, brought them out of the land of Egypt and into the wilderness and made them an offer. I will be your God and you will be my people. And here are the terms. Here are the conditions. Now look folks, you and I, we're we're New Testament people and we're steeped in this. We, We are brewed in understanding human depravity and the sin nature. But let's just try and look through that momentarily this evening. And let me ask you this question. How difficult are the Ten Commandments really? How difficult are they really? No other God before me. How hard should that be? No graven images. How hard should that be? Keep the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath. How hard should that be? Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't take my name in vain. How hard should that how hard should it be, folks, to just tell the truth? How hard should it be to not take something that isn't yours? How hard should it be to honor our father and our mother? How hard should it be not to want somebody else's wife or their house or their car or their job or their title? Again, we're New Testament people. We know how hard it is. 
But if you just look at them at face value, you ask the question, how hard could this really be? How hard is it really, folks, to keep the Sabbath? What if, what if the only thing that was binding upon us was this? One day of the week. One day of the week, right? You want to go to heaven when you die. You want to live with God eternally. You want all the glories. Here, here's the requirement. One day out of seven, you do absolutely nothing. Nothing. No TV, no phone, no internet, no golf, no football, no baseball, no day at the lake, nothing. One day a week, that's it. Why is that hard? Why would that be hard? But folks, you will notice that one of the things that Israelites ignored, they almost made a beeline to disobedience, was keeping the Sabbath. And in fact, their violation of the Sabbath days and all that went to the Sabbath days is part of the cause of their punishment. And yet when they brought back into the land after 70 years of captivity, it isn't very long until here is Nehemiah dealing with them about the fact that they are not keeping the Sabbath. Now, Paul explains it to us like this in the book of Galatians. What is the point of the law? It is the schoolmaster. It is our personally guided tour to lead us to Christ. And who is Christ? Our Savior. And how does he save us, folks? By giving us a new nature. This is why Jesus will say to one of the most devoted of the Old Testament people, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you have to be born all over again. You have to be. Because, folks, nothing enables a person to keep the law of Moses apart from the nature of God. And we don't have the nature of God naturally. Look at your dog, if you have a dog. We don't have a dog. We have grandchildren. They have dogs. So I look at their dogs. We had a man, this was a long, a long, long time ago. I mean, seriously, sometime in the 80s, traveled, came through, he and his wife, wonderful people, came through, they'd written some of their own music, it was great stuff. And one of the stories he told, this is all I remember. I remember his name, I remember this, I remember this story. He said, we have taught our dog to pray. <clears throat> We've taught our dog to pray. When we sit at the table and ask a blessing on the meal, our dog bows his head and folds his paws. <clears throat> But we all laugh because none of us really think the dog is praying. Because the dog doesn't have that kind of nature. The dog would need a different kind of nature to do that kind of thing. So how is it, folks, that a group of people who have enjoyed God's blessing for so long in so many dramatic ways, what do we say about folks who have enjoyed that who as soon as the joy of that blessing is gone are almost immediately reverted back to their old sinful ways. They need a supernatural deliverance. They need not an old covenant, but a new covenant. Now again, we're on the receiving end of that. Right? We understand our sinfulness. We've called upon Christ. We've been made new creatures. We're living in that agonizing time when we possess both natures. 
But we understand, folks, that it is the law of God kept through Christ that is our hope. But let me expand upon that just a little bit or add to that two more points. Secondly, right, one of the takeaways from a passage like this from the entire history of Israel is our need of a savior, of a supernatural God who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, Christ. Secondly, we should not presume upon our status as one of God's people to protect us from his displeasure. Let me give you, I'm just going to give you the references, a couple of New Testament references. One is Romans 11, 17 through 24, in which Paul, talking about us, Gentiles, the church, points out that we were a later addition, a blessed addition. But given the harsh way in which God dealt with Israel, Paul says, do not think that you, being grafted in, are immune from dealing with his displeasure. The second passage is 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 10, in which the wilderness wanderings of the book of Numbers are examples for us, the New Testament church. And again, the message is, do not presume upon your privilege. Do not suppose that being God's child renders us in such a place that God would never deal sternly with us or rebuke us or correct us. Quite the contrary. When I first became a pastor, I kind of, like most guys did, graduated from Bible college fully understanding without ever having it been explained to me that getting on the wrong side of finances and females would be detrimental to pastoral ministry. The real shocker for me came in the realization that what did in more pastors than failings with females and failings with finances were failings with their families. It is unfortunately, folks, not uncommon for children growing up in pastors' homes to grow up with the mentality that all of the policies and rules that exist out there in the world do not pertain to them, that they are protected by virtue of their father's position. And this was something that I had noted, and I still recall my shock at having a conversation with my then 18-year-old college freshman son on the campus of a large Christian college who said, Dad... The preacher's kids have the worst reputation on campus. And I started to laugh. And he said, it's not funny. And he's right. It isn't funny. But it is something to consider, folks, that we think our privilege protects us. And the Bible cautions us otherwise. God is not a respecter of persons. The prestige we enjoy, even if we're the king of Israel like David, will not protect us from his displeasure. In our past faithfulness and activities, 
will not necessarily protect us from his displeasure. So third caution, a word of biblical advice. Be on guard. Now again, we're dealing with the genealogy of a particular group of people who had a long history. And you and I are singular individuals living a lifetime. But folks, I would suggest to you that the Bible is pretty clear that we should be aware that we are our own worst enemies. Fifteen times the New Testament tells us to watch, to be on guard, to be on the lookout. Fifty-six times the New Testament tells us to take heed. Many of those times, most of those times, It's like this, take heed to yourself. Take heed to yourself. One of the things that God does, folks, one of the ways that God works is by cautioning us and instructing us in the word and giving us some of the responsibility for paying attention to how we think about our lives and our actions and what we know about him. That's laid at our feet, part of our maturing and growing. So we need a supernatural Savior, Jesus the Messiah, because we need a divine nature. And in our world, when we get saved, we are still then possessing an old nature and a new nature. So we must be always on guard. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kind faithfulness to us. Thank you for a Bible and Father, thank you that the actions and the thoughts and the words and the deeds of other people are written and recorded for our instruction. May it not be wasted on us. And Father, help me as pastor to never think that I am exempted from what I preach to your people. So help me be as attentive as well. Bless these dear saints. Bless their lives. May our actions be right. Always we pray in Christ's name. Amen.